clubhouse. This is Caroline. This is Sheila. Welcome to the I Know This Much Is True podcast. Today we're talking about episode three. Hey guys, how are you doing? Another fun-filled episode of Shits and Giggles. This one wasn't as, you know, wrist-slitting-inducing for me as the first two. I think we're hitting a little bit of a story plateau, so. I'm very curious about our narrator, Dominic, and I feel like everything that he says and all the stories that he told us in flashback in this one just made me wonder more and more about this guy and... Just what his deal is, you know? I know, Sheila, you mentioned in previous podcasts, like, what undiagnosed issues is Dominic dealing with? And I feel like it's just, oh, it's on display here. The more that we learn about him, the less reliable he's becoming. Less reliable and less likable. I mean, he is, uh, you know, I feel like we were introduced to him just a guy who was tired, right? He was tired of being his brother's keeper. He was tired of the struggle and the difficult life uh, of his twin and what he saw as a burden. The more we see of him, the more he's, it's not that. It's just that he blames the world for his problems and seems to have been this way all of his life. Starting out with the penny drink water flashback. He does not come off in a good light there. Were you guys surprised at how manipulative he was and how planned and calculated knowing things that that she would get in trouble and just sort of the targeting that he did with Penny? He knew how to play the system. Like He knew how to do what he needed to do to get the results that he was after. And then also knew the the way to play the system to make the community feel better when he did the little, the the tree planting in her name. The the anger involved with and the sociopathic tendencies involved in targeting Penny. He blames her exaggerating and what he was calling lying, you know, about the pony we see and, and, and her stories. But I feel like that's all kids. All kids do that. I can't believe this is the only child Dominic ran into as a third grader that did that. Only other, she was the only other set of twins in their school besides you know, him and him and Thomas was her, her and her brother Ralph and went after her with cunning and forethought. And then with the eulogy at the end, I mean, that's some psychopathic kind of tendencies, right? He talks about how he wrote it knowing it was exactly what they'd want to hear so that he would be in the spotlight to eulogize her. I mean, these are the red flags that I'm talking about. This is him as a child, and I don't see that he's changed much here in the present either. He's gotten worse. I mean, he got a vasectomy without telling his wife. I mean, that is just like beyond the beyonds in terms of like being able to trust somebody. So the Penny and Drinkwater scene, when he lied about her, he said he was looking back at Thomas and he was, quote, reminding me of what I do wrong, unquote. This scene, maybe, you know, him taking this out on Penny is what he might feel for his brother Thomas and can't act on in a certain way. I don't know. What do you think about that? I like that idea that it's like displaced anger to see someone else suffer who's already he perceives as like a weakling or someone who's just not up to par as far as Dominic's concerned. I agree with you that there felt like some sort of strange displaced punishment that he was giving Penny. We've been looking at this so far that Thomas is the damaged one or Thomas is the one with the issues, but his inability to to look young Thomas in the eyes because he knows what he did was wrong. This idea that Thomas represents Dominic's conscience is a powerful thought because it really turns on its head 
who is the most at-risk one here? Who is the real danger to himself or to society? Certainly in Penny's, Penny Drinkwater's uh, case, Dominic was the dangerous one to her and, and to her life situation and to her family and to Ralph, who is still around in the future. Thomas was not a harm to them. Thomas was a friend to that family. It's interesting how, how society views these brothers, but what the story really seems to reveal about them. The entire story, every episode surprises me in how far they're willing to take a concept. So for Penny, the idea of this lie and her getting in trouble and then it going to the three day suspension and then going to the, like, she freaking disappears. This author, Wally Lamb, takes it to this next level shit that like messes with my head. Sheila, when you mentioned the vasectomy, same. Like he could have gone and just gotten information or made a doctor's appointment, but like he had surgery, you know? Like it's like next level always. Does that surprise you guys? Or are you just sort of like getting a little immune to it? I mean, there's a lot about Wally Lamb that makes me want to hug him and ask him who hurt him. You know, the process of writing is, isn't part of it. The idea that you can let your wildest thoughts and fantasies live on paper as a way of excising them from your brain. It, it does take a certain kind of imagination to come up with these stories, though. This almost feels like a based on true story, the way it's written. I'm not saying that it is. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying the the way it's being told, it has a very feel of you could research these Birdsey brothers and it feels like this happened to someone. Life is so much stranger than fiction so often. So to be able to tell a tale that feels like life is, uh, I think, no small feat. I read uh, She's Come Undone, which was Wally Lamb's previous book to this one. And I can tell you, and I don't know, Sheila, if you've read it, it describes in detail a woman during a, like, a sexual experience in such detail that I'm saying as a woman and knowing Wally's a man, this guy has got some skill to be able to put himself in someone else's shoes because the description of how certain things feel and what's happening in the scene, I mean, it, it's talked about all the time that no one can believe a man wrote that. And there's a lot to what I'm hearing you say that's like, it's hard to believe that he made up these characters or that he could possibly put himself in these men's shoes. And he is, really skilled and amazing at that. So I'm kind of reading the book along while we're, we're recording these and watching the, these, the series. You know, the, the level of detail that he's getting into, so the, the whole Penny and Drinkwater scene actually happens a bit earlier in the book, so that's why I was like, oh, well, it, it worked for how they built it into the scene with the flashbacks and things like that and really kind of setting up the character. I think the way that the show did it juxtaposed in between the scenes like between like the vasectomy you know the flashbacks with dessa is really well done but you know the the level of detail that he was getting to trying to like you know getting into the mind of an eight-year-old and really you know telling that story the level of detail is astonishing so mike i think you're right that i don't think that this is necessarily based on you know fiction i think he's pulling this from either stories that he's been told and kind of weaving them together or some sort of you know personal experience which is how this all kind of comes together. The telling of the Penny Drinkwater story ends up revolving around the location of their, their grandfather's grave, which is by this waterfall, which seemed to be a touchstone for Thomas and Dominic throughout their life. And that's where Penny was found. Waterfalls uh, representing letting go and the process of cleansing and uh, the flow of energy in life. It, it reminded me of the idea of being the tree of life. Thomas gets to later on in the story uh, when he's quoting revelations passages one and two chapters one and two of revelations and he's talking about the tree of life and 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 how maybe he sees himself as that that tree and that giver of of energy and stuff 
it's interesting the the way water is used in this episode. And then the opening cold sequence coming out of this flashback is is weighed into the water by the soul stirrers. Did you guys hit upon the water idea at all? Cause, just because I thought it was an interesting recurring motif in this episode. So like the notion of waterfalls is a very popular place for suicides. It is touched on in the narrative and in the opening. Typically where waterfalls occur, the water tends to be cleaner. So I don't know if that has something to do with the theme of this episode with the, you know, later on with the revelation stuff, you know, it's because the the current of the water is so fast and then the actual, you know, churning up of the actual waterfall. So the water tends to be cleaner. So, you know, there's a, maybe there's a correlation there. I like that. It has a real baptism vibe to it as well. Coming from a special needs standpoint or just someone who's been through a lot of crisis in my own life, I can tell you that I saw him a bunch of times actually walking to the falls and seeming to be very contemplative. What it reminded me of is something that I often talk about with other special needs parents, which is the best place to cry is in the shower because no one can hear you. You know, your face is all wet anyway. And the way that waterfalls tend to be noisy and loud and feel like you could mask, you know, yelling or crying or something like that. There's also like a, a level there for me of like release and, you know, just trying to deal with your own grief. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that uh, and, and the way people use that and, and the shower because another meaning associated with them in, in I'm looking through like dream symbology is that waterfalls are symbols of mystery, secrets, hidden knowledge or forbidden knowledge. The idea of hiding yourself amongst the waterfalls or amongst the rushing water is interesting. And, and I wonder what that will continue to mean, especially since his grandfather is a mystery also buried right there. Is the show signaling to us that there, there are secrets and, and forbidden or, or unknown knowledge that's going to come out around, around this idea? Since we're talking about the grandfather's grave, I feel like the one tiny nugget that we got during Thomas and Dominic's meeting this time face to face and that one little sentence where he's like, how come grandma's not buried next to grandpa? The idea that mom never talked about grandma, that whole little thing, one sentence was enough to be like, oh my God, why don't they talk about grandma? Like, what is going on here, Wally? What did you do to grandma? And really, like up until this point, it's been about the dad, like, who's our dad? So, you know, so now to like kind of throw grandma into the mix, it's like, well, now we have two family mysteries. That whole conversation with Thomas, what was real was a real lucid moment for me, for Thomas. I, I know it, I know it came in the context of Dominic and Lisa trying to talk to him, preparing him for this meeting in front of the review board. And my take was that wasn't what Thomas wanted to talk about. Thomas was, was noodling on and working through something in his brain, dealing with his grandfather and his grandmother and his family, which he seems to be, always be very preoccupied. He's always asking about Ray. He's always asking, you know, he seems very concerned about the state of his family. That was a huge signifier to me as we hit the middle. I mean, this is the end of this episode represents the middle of the season, really. It's a six part, you know, season. It, it was a real signifier to me that we have to move towards the grandfather's story now because we haven't and the show's been dangling in front of us plus there was again in this episode and this was a nitpick of mine was this this again recurring theme of him and his italian ancestry again not going anywhere there were so many references to being an italian or sicilian hot blood in this episode or your name is italian just very non sequitur just kind of the show like highlighting like a like a bookmark like a placeholder and be like just keep an idea you know remember this guy's italian you don't know anything about that but it's going to come pay off at some point so all of that together 
told me that we're, we're going to we have to broach this subject at some point. So hopefully maybe in the next episode. Because otherwise it would just be odd just to keep having it pop up for no good reason. I think it borders on bad writing as is to begin with, though the way it was just heavy, so heavily handed done in the last couple episodes, just raging about being an Italian for the sake of being Italian. Yeah, your hot blooded Sicilian and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, as if it's, in the Northeast being an Italian is such a fucking oddity that it's it's something has to be remarked on constantly. But the show, after promising or, or hinting that it was going to be a real exploration of who Dominic is identity-wise, ancestrally, you know, through examining, trying to figure out who his father was, I feel like that was a promise given to us in the first episode and then hasn't really been touched on other than kind of clunky placeholders. So I need it for me to continue to enjoy this plot line on the show. I need them to get to it. What do you think, Caroline? Am I, am I overreacting or is this a fair criticism? No, I agree with you. And I'm ready to get to the grandfather's story. I feel like that that was like an unfulfilled promise that we were given in the first episode that he was an important part. We spent so much time with his manuscript and the idea that we were going to get some answers and understanding of where this family came from and how they got to where they are. And so I'm ready. Like, I mean, my gosh, you're right. We're already finished with episode three. I mean, we, we haven't seen anything about this grandfather. And what in the world? How does he play in? I'm very interested. And I'm very ready. To say nothing of what the fuck happened to Nedra and the, the manuscript, this fam family heirloom that she just made off with. He's not spending. We know he's not doing work, right? We know he's ignoring the Roots house. We know he's spending a lot of time with his brother, but the rest of his time, he's not actively searching for three years where this manuscript is or where this crazy woman went with it. That doesn't seem right to me, right? I don't know. It, I I have issues with it, I guess. So I need them to deal with it. They've got a lot to unpack then in three episodes left. It's going to get awfully dense, I have to think, or else they're going to have to cut out an awful lot of the book. E either one makes me a little bit concerned. Well, the book is 900 pages, so they're definitely condensing a lot of things. That's a scene. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, I mean, the show, like, as is AB, uh, HBO's want, was presented as a limited series, limited six part series. But that's not to say that they don't spin it off into a second season to deal with whatever, with other as aspects that they're cutting out or, or not dealing with, which is frustrating if you're looking for a six episode isolated series that tells a whole story. Six hours, you should be able to tell a story, a complete story. I had never considered that they were going to do a second season or that we wouldn't complete the story in these six episodes. So you just give me a little bit of chills there because I'm like, oh my goodness, are we really going further? Well, Big Little Lies was presented as a isolated story, a one season story of, of telling what happened in the book and, and, and relating it. People went so crazy for it that after it ended, there was a clamoring and it was what, less than a month when Reese Witherspoon and the writer of the book came out and said, oh yeah, we're going to do a second season. We're not, we're not done telling this story yet. It, especially when it comes to HBO, I don't think you could ever take that off of the table. I agree. And I, I that is fascinating. And I enjoyed Big Little Lies and I, I had also read the book. And so I was very satisfied with the first season that they had told the full story, but I was excited to come back for season two and explore more and different ideas about where it could have gone. So, oh boy. <laughs> Let's continue uh, with the flashbacks because now after third grade, we move on to Dominic and Thomas going off to college and getting this the, the significant present of the typewriter. This struck me as a real parent moment, and I wanted to touch base with you guys on it. The idea that the mother giving this typewriter to them 
it reminded me that there are so many presents parents sometimes give their children loaded with meaning and loaded with significance for the parent that maybe the, the child doesn't fully appreciate or comes to appreciate later. Do you guys relate with the idea of sacrificing something you wanted so badly to provide your child? Have you guys ever had that experience with uh, with your kids? For myself, yeah, absolutely. I mean, for different reasons. So my kids are older. They're 17, 17, 16. And they all have their challenges. And so there's times when, you know, I've definitely, first of all, sacrificed, you know, and, and they have no knowledge of the sacrifice that I'm making. I thought it was interesting that Dominic was aware that his mom had wanted the grandfather clock and opted to spend it on the typewriter instead. Because I think most times kids have no good idea what the sacrifices are behind the scenes. And so they really don't know how their responses are, you know, coming across to their parents. But additionally, I I mean, I think that there's lots of times with my kids that we give them something that, you know, is meaningful to me and, <laughs> and they're like, thanks. <laughs> and I'm like, mm. <laughs> but, but for my guys, they really, they understand, but they don't. Two of them have autism. And so for them, you know, sentimentality is relative, you know, they're like, okay, you know, that's important to you, but you know, why, why would you expect me to have the same level of interest in this thing as you do? No, I think that's totally fair. I, I was I was taken by whether or not Dominic realized the clock significance in the moment as a as an eighteen year old. I think the sacrifice, you know, to keep him out of Vietnam, but that she gave up this lifelong clock dream. I wasn't sure if that was something that he came to know later as an adult or appreciate later as an adult, or something that he was aware of in the moment. Because that that would seem very self aware, even for a 17, 18 year old to know what their parents were giving up so that they could have this thing or, you know, or more oftentimes when you become a parent and then you're in that position and then you think back to what did your parents do for you? It's it's an interesting thing about just kind of how time repeats itself. Life repeats so often, you know, when you go from being a kid to a parent. For me, what I took from this was that he was retelling the story you know, in present day looking back. So I think he's had 20 years of sort of reflection on that. And we've, uh, we've kind of discussed that he's not a very self-aware kind of a character. So this was a, an emotional leap for me, for him um, to realize that, especially what his mother gave up. She wanted this, you know, enormous grandfather clock and she was halfway to it and traded it in this typewriter for them. So I just, just don't know if he, I really believe it when he was 17 or 18 that he knew what that was. I agree with you, Sheila. There's moments in this that I'm like, really? You know, is, is Dominic the way that he's presented to us presented very consistently in terms of, you know, there's times when he just seems so self-centered and so in his own head that when he describes other people or things that they were doing, things that they were thinking, how other people were acting around them, I find that he most of the time, if we're watching the scene and he's doing the voiceover, they rarely match. Like the things that he's saying and the way that people are acting, I'm like, that's not what they're doing. You know, the kids were not making fun of Thomas on the school bus. Maybe a couple of them were, but there were other kids who were hugging, other kids giving suggestions. But the voiceover is like, they were all monsters. They were all after us. And I was like, oh my God, you're a scene, you know? So I wonder about that. I think you're being kind by saying he's self-centered because a number of times so far, he said that Thomas is selfish. I think he's the selfish one. I think there's a lot of evidence to show, even though he is his you know the caretaker for his brother you know he's also called thomas his curse yes i know that's in a safe space that he said it and he was frustrated but at the same time 
I kind of believe that. So I think he's a very selfish person. I'm sorry, I keep coming back to the vasectomy and the horrible sort of story that I told around the vasectomy. So like, I know somebody who's done this and he is literally one of the most selfish people I've ever met in my whole life. That sounds like a podcast that we should be doing on the side talking about that guy because holy shit. It gets so much worse. You have no idea. He took his daughter-in-law to bed and had his son water his plants while they went away for a weekend vacation. (sighs) Yeah. That's disturbing. Yeah. Uh, Let's move off of that. So let's go to the flashback. Caroline, talk to me about what you thought the significance of this flashback was. Was it to show us that Thomas had been pretty, quote unquote, normal up until college? And then we get to see the decline. Was it really just to tell us more about who Dominic is because he meets Dessa during this time? What was your big takeaway from the meaning of this college flashback? There was layers to it. Certainly, I think that watching Thomas decline very graphically in front of us with the tearing apart of the dorm room, the crying about whether or not Dominic would be his roommate, the irrational thought behind the like, we can't share a typewriter, you know, just all those things I think was was really helping us understand how this little boy who we had only really seen at this third grade level who, yes, He was considered, you know, different. He was considered, maybe he didn't know how to do the things as everyone else. I think probably in today's terms, we might say developmentally delayed, things like that. But I didn't get the level of the schizophrenic part until we got further into this, where he was starting with with all of this other talk going on about the teachers after him and, and all of those things that I felt like, okay, I can see how this is intensifying, speeding up here. And I can understand why it's really important for us to know that this is when Dessa came in on the scene, because I think that if you're someone who comes into either a person's life or a family's life, when they are trying to figure out a diagnosis or when the decline is actually happening, you can spotlight that moment, then you are so much more likely to hang on in the journey with them than if you come in later in life when the diagnosis has been set, like say Joy, and you're just coming in on the scene and you didn't see it all collapse, I think you have a very different relationship to the entire situation. So I think both things were super important to be shown to us. And I'm glad that they did. For sure. I mean, I I totally agree with you. I mean, we know from the present time that Dessa is emotionally invested in Thomas and remains so. After he cleaves off his hand, she goes and visits him in the hospital and like Ray, who who doesn't make it beyond the front porch of the hospital, you know, so she, even years later remains, remains there for him and emotionally invested with him. And obviously, I mean, we don't know this for a fact, but I think we know it for a fact that Joy has not gone to see Thomas at any point and could give a shit. I mean, she couldn't even stop to talk to tell Dominic about the hospital calling about her, his brother, prior to talking to him about their own relationship things when he's playing racquetball with Leo. I mean, yeah, so Joy is de- is definitely in a different position. I just like how the show has actually done a really good job of portraying younger Thomas as as nothing maybe more than than shy or quiet or or at best odd. I wonder I wonder what it is about college that sets him on this decline or was it just a genetic time bomb that was always going to take off? College is kind of the time where well, around that 18 to 21, 22 is when, you know, signs of schizophrenia do start to manifest in a majority of patients. You know, typically by 36, most people have their schizophrenia diagnosis. So it's 
a process. It doesn't just happen one day. It's it's an evolutionary kind of a, a disease where the symptoms kind of, they appear and sometimes they intensify, sometimes they go away, they come back. It's the right age for the manifestation of those symptoms. I'm glad you can add that in, Sheila, because that's the kind of information that I feel like most people don't know. I'll add in that the stability and routine of the 12 years you had at school and home have now been disrupted. And for a lot of people who have any type of challenges, that is a time when it can be a really agitated state because you're everything that you know and everything that you count on the predictability of everything has changed and they've shown us that they lived in a in a pretty small place with you know the same group of kids they went through school and now everyone's different the expectations are different and and again going back to the if they knew you when people who grow up with you have a different tolerance for the way that you behave, for your needs. Um, it's an important part of why a lot of institutions closed and people came back to their communities because one of the big things is that uh, for, our, for my own daughter, we had the choice to send her to a residential school. However, I knew from being a teacher and from reading and, and researching that if a child grows up in the community and the business people know her here because they saw her grow from a little tiny girl, they are more likely to give her a volunteer opportunity as an adult. They are more likely to be tolerant and accepting of the way that that child is rather than you bring an adult back in to a situation where this community has never met this person and now you expect them to all accept who this person is. It doesn't work out that way. Thinking about where Thomas is, is now being plunked into Yukon, which I have to tell you guys, I was completely shocked that he was able to get into college, that, that he and Dominic would go to the same school. All of the things felt like, how did that happen? <laughs> I really understood how you could, depending on where you were coming from, your point of view, you would get why Thomas at this point would be exceptionally agitated and and get to a more uh, just intense level of his mental illness. So we spend a lot of time or I spend a lot of time anyway bashing Dominic and his his tendencies and and what I see as red flags in his character, but I thought it was a pretty honest moment and well done and well presented after he comes back to the room and Thomas has trashed uh, trashed the room and, and trashed the case trying to get to the typewriter. And he's having this first paranoia about the teacher being after him. And he asks his brother to type the paper. Dominic does, after protesting that he won't, he does. And then he talks about how he's talking about the paper and how it was just tangents and theories and conspiracies and just these run-on sentences and thoughts that went nowhere. And, and he talks about how he was more scared of the paper than anything Thomas had ever actually done at that point. And it seemed like a real turning point for me in how he viewed his brother, not so much anymore as a burden who had to be tolerated, but as someone who there was something, there was something wrong with him, medically wrong with him, that for the first time he maybe seemed scared about for the, for the well-being of his brother and didn't know how to handle it. You can imagine so many 18, 19 year olds, I mean, God, how many adults can't don't know how to handle situations, but it seemed like a really honest moment that he did the paper because he was terrified of, he didn't know what else to do. What did you guys think of that whole typewriter scene and, and the paranoia and, and that whole end of the college flashback? I actually appreciated that Wally Lame included the concept that people with special needs 
are in fact targeted by people of authority like teachers. And we had two examples of this. When Dominic goes to turn in Thomas's paper, the English professor I thought was kind of a bitch and was like, I hope that this teaches you something about time management. To me, I was like, I don't think she necessarily would have said that had she thought that this person was fully there. I think that she was kind of being a jerk. Additionally, we had the flashback. He's holding hands with Mrs. Haas saying, we had conspired together to make Penny's life a living hell. There is that element of picking on people who are perceived weaker. That's a real issue. They're far more likely to be abused. I thought it was interesting that it was very subtly layered in. It was very clever how it was like, yes, it was somewhat of being paranoid that this teacher was being a jerk. But then when Dominic experienced it firsthand, she she was condescending. She was a snot to him when he went to turn it in. I thought that that was like, oh, you know what? I mean, I could see where you'd be like, uh, I'm not sure. Like, is he perceiving this right or isn't he? I, I understand what you're you're saying. And I see that. And I actually think that is a nice touch. I think I would have liked to seen more development of the teacher signaling him out because I think I feel like all we'd actually knew was Thomas was not going to class Thomas was not getting out of bed Thomas waited to the very last minute minute to do this paper and turned it in or or Dominic impersonating Thomas turned it in literally at the very last minute was due as, as a teacher not knowing anything more I could see being exasperated with that person. I could see scolding that person for their poor time management skills and having had enough, speaking nothing to the personality of the person or or their advantages or disadvantages or challenges, just being as an exasperated teacher who who doesn't want to have to, you know, mollycoddle and hold hands uh, with with a student. You know, college is a time when you're you're supposed to pick up these these time management skills and these and, and responsibilities. So I would have liked to see more targeting of it, other than just hearing Thomas wasn't actually doing anything for class. Maybe seeing him in class and being attacked or being singled out. Like I felt like they did a good job with Penny, uh, Dominic, very much going after Penny and the teacher not taking her side as just a manner, and also setting the scene that she was interracial. You know, she was a mixed race child, and in the fifties, you can imagine what that must have felt like. I, I don't think they did as good a job layering for this college scene, though. I think you're probably right. That's what we're probably supposed to take away from it. It didn't hit me that way. The main thing that I that I guess I want to say is that it, it doesn't really matter whether you or I think that that teacher handled it properly. Thomas wasn't incorrect in his assessment that the teacher was speaking down to him and you're saying she had every right to because he deserved it he should have been getting you know finger wagged but his concern and his worry was not unfounded she was having some layer of disciplinary tone towards him that wasn't wrong that wasn't a, a paranoid feeling she was acting that way towards him. It's really subtle. It's really sophisticated as the way that you're showing it, that it's it's not black and white. There are little nuggets of truth to the things that he is saying, which makes him so much more complicated and so much more interesting. As I know, Sheila, we've spoken in other podcasts about, you know, the the delusions in general, the idea that there, there are little nuggets in there. It's, it's not a full lie, whatever he's saying. There is something to it. And so 
I just thought that that was, it was so, so subtle, but I really appreciated having Dominic have to stand in Thomas's shoes and see it from his point of view and realize like he does get talked down to. And it doesn't matter if he deserved it. Like I said, I agree with you. He, he probably did not doing his work. I mean, I'm, I'm a teacher by trade. I'm going to give you some shit about that. But he wasn't wrong that she was disciplining and, and treating him in a strict way. You know, I've heard both your arguments on this and it's hard to know, you know, sort of where the intent is because you are seeing the disease manifesting and there's no professor at a, a large state school like UConn that's going to, you know, notice a decline in students like that. You need somebody a lot closer. But yeah, you know, like I have a son, he's got special needs and, you know, I do worry about that. Like, you know, does he get the attention that he needs from his teachers? Uh, does he get the wrong kind of attention? Does he get the right kind of attention? You both pose really good arguments. You know, it's hard to know what the intent is. So I guess we'll have to leave it up to the listeners. So the reason why Dominic comes back to this trash room is because he's been out with his new girl, Dessa. Did you guys enjoy getting to see them actually meet? And did you think that it was an interesting way that they explain the roles of that relationship, the protector and the victim. I, I liked where they met. I liked the fact that it's the dial tone lounge and the pickup lines that go along with it. It might have a time and a place to make a resurrection in the current <laughs> pandemic situation. I had never seen such a bar and I, I and, and it took me a second to realize what was happening. And, and then I thought it was pretty cool. I were, you know, I like kitsch and I like novelty restaurants, but I thought the idea of him rising to her honor and God, as a waitress, can you imagine how often she's probably getting hit on and butt pinched and, and other things in a night? But the idea that Dominic rose to defend her honor seemed just about the most Dominic thing that he could possibly do. You know, he, he's got a real savior complex about him, just the way he talks about how, you know, what he does for his brother. I thought it was dead on characterization of who Dominic is and that Dessa, I mean, we don't really know a lot about her. But the idea that she didn't really actually need his help, but he assumed that she did probably sets a good tone for how their relationship proceeds, you know, from this point on in, into the future, into their marriage. Small side note, because I know you guys like these little nuggets. The Dial Tone Lounge was a real thing in Enfield. It did exist in the 80s. And I always think that that's super fun and cool. And I do hope it comes back, Sheila, because... Post-Rona times, I think, how are people ever going to date? I do not know. So if you could at least sit in the same space and look across the room and be able to talk in an intimate way, I, shit, in every bar, I wish I could <laughs> just talk on the phone to someone because it's always yelling and weird. Just the cheesy pickup lines have to come back, though. That's part of it. Absolutely. Mandatory. Caroline, what was your take on him rising to protect her honor? I mean, I come at it as a guy who's not a particular fan of Dominic and also a guy thinking about how I would act in that situation. But how did you take it as someone who maybe, you know, gets hit on in bars or has had a similar experience to what Dessa was going to? For the most part, I'm not the girl that's going to say, don't hold the door for me or, you know, I don't need your protection or something like that. I'm not usually that girl. Sure, I've get my ass slapped or pinched or whatever enough that I don't mind it when someone else is like, hey, knock it off, you know, not cool. I mean, you know, it's really more about it stopping than uh, who said it. And so I don't I don't have a need to be like supersonic feminist about it. it but also it doesn't mean I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going off with you now because you like protected me. But that's not happening either. I think it was a really good setup to understand how he could think that he could act without her consent in the vasectomy part. I think as small as that little nugget is, it's easy to see how he thought it's more important to act first and ask questions later. Because as small as it was, that's basically what he did. 
Sheila, I don't know. How do you feel about a guy coming to your, I'm not going to say rescue because that's too strong, but really just saying something. If he sees something saying like, hey, knock it off over there. You know, it's appreciated definitely because, you know, I mean, Des is a tough chick. I like to think that I'm a tough chick. Things have happened to me in my life and I've been able to handle myself without an arrest record. So I think it's always nice when someone sees that you're in trouble and, you know, wants to kind of help you out. Not necessarily, Caroline, like you said, like, I'm going to go off with you now. But there's definitely like this little meet cute that they have in the parking lot afterwards. And I think that, you know, the fact that he did come to her honor makes him a little bit more memorable to her. Draw an underline under that, then to connect it to like the vasectomy scene later on, you know, in their marriage that how did he think that he was going to get away with that with given her feistiness, given her, you know, ability to defend herself? Her clear independence, you know, I, I don't understand that. I mean, honestly, the idea that she went and took that trip by herself anyway, despite the fact that, you know, he had his own opinions of the matter, doesn't that spell it all out to us that she has an idea about something, she's going to move forward on that. Now, I guess I want to say, are they both allowed to act like that? Is she allowed to say, well, I don't care if you're not going on this trip. I'm going by myself, you know, do your own thing. Is he allowed then in that interim to say, well, then I have my own ideas on this and I'm going to move forward on this thing. I know very well where I stand on this, but I'll let y'all go say. No, I mean, I think that's apples and oranges. The idea of getting a vasectomy without telling your partner affects both of yours, which is the point she makes as she, by the way, Sheila talking about things to watch out for on Dessa. I think you have to include her right hook there. That was a real reaction, starting to punch him and rage at him about the fact that she wanted more kids and, and being mad. Like he made a decision that affected both of them. Her going on a solo trip to grieve and, and to deal with her emotions over the loss of Angela, it affects both of them in only the most superficial ways of the fact that she's not there. That affects him. But that that's not the same thing at all. If he was to use it as a defense, it would be a poor move on his part. And uh, God have mercy on his soul should he do that. <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. Obviously, I don't think taking a trip by yourself is the same thing as changing the life's plan of how many children you're having <laughs> at all. However, I do think that it speaks to the idea that they're both very independent minded and that they're willing to do things without the other one being on board. It's like, fine, okay, I don't care, I'm just gonna go. For me, it just makes these characters a lot more interesting. There's a lot more dimension to them than just your standard, she didn't go because he said no, or she's the dominating one, so he's not gonna act on something on his own. It's like, no, they, they have their ways, man, and they both have their own brains and opinions on things. I will tell you that getting a vasectomy or changing the child plan on your spouse would yield a hell of a lot more than just a right hook from me. I would have worked the body uh, until he was screaming and crying. <laughs> there would be blood. <laughs> At bare min. I'm saying bone through the skin, okay? Compound fracture. Nice. Let's juxtapose the reason he's having these flashbacks is because in the present, his wayward girlfriend, Joy, has returned after being away for several days and after making him a lovely dinner of chicken piccata, announces that she's pregnant, which we had gotten little Easter egg clues throughout the episode that it was going that way. There was a doctor message with test results. There was an empty, clear blue easy pregnancy test in the trash. What did you guys think of them interspersing the loss of Angela and the trip and his memories of Dessa at the same time as he's learning and dealing very apathetically, almost maybe, with the news from Joy, uh, this this dead-end relationship that he's going through in, in the present. I think his reaction was, again, along the lines of the sociopathic tendencies. He didn't say anything. He kind of like smirked. He kind of laughed a little bit. 
and then got up, you know, wordlessly went into the bedroom and fell asleep. And the only thing he said to her was, are you sure I'm the father? It just was very cold to me. Obviously, he knew he wasn't the father, you know, because of the vasectomy. If two suggests the pattern and three confirms it, I think asking her point blank, are you sure I'm the father to hear her reaction because he knows she's going to lie in that moment. I mean, she wouldn't make chicken peccata for that or anyone special. You know, so knowing she's going to lie there, I think he needed to hear just that nail in the coffin lie come out of her mouth to to just resign him to how dead end this relationship was. What was your take, Caroline? Oh, shit. I think I probably, I mean, I hope I'm not a sociopath, but I, I think that I would respond in much the same way, given I already knew what she was going to say. So had it come out of the right, blue, right. I'm with you that I would have responded in a much bigger way. But the doctor's message and then me finding the pregnancy test and then her making me this special dinner, I know she's about to announce this news. I, I am going to like pull like a lean back in my chair, rest my elbow on the back of the chair and be like, what you going to say? <laughs> and and when I say to you, oh, really? You're going to hang on to this lie? Like, you're really going to go that way. Now, I'm not the girl that could go to sleep right after that, okay? If I'm going to walk in the... I, I'm not even going to walk in the other room. I'm fucking leaving the apartment, okay? I'm not sticking around. I'm not closing my eyes <laughs> in the other room. That's not my scene. I'll go sociopath on you on that part because... That takes a special someone who thinks after you blow up someone's game over there that you should close your eyes. I don't think that's a good idea. I just think it's it's I just think it's just how done he is with with the whole joy situation. I think Dominic is close to just snapping the the, the resign going to sleep upon this news. He is just done. In, in joy and her lie and her non convincing response of oh, of course you're the father. I think I think the idea of sleep is just an escape is just where he's at. You know, in Rona times, he's definitely someone who's not getting out of bed. I think he is just gripped by depression and and bad, bad thoughts. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, he's he's definitely exhibiting depressed tendencies. Um, you know, being able to go right to sleep after sort of some news like that, even if he was expecting it just to be faced with it, to be able to sleep that easily. It's, you know, that it's an, an indicator me. of something. Right? Yeah, it's an indicator of something else. <laughs> like there's something else underlying, you know, underneath the surface there. Definitely. I agree. I, I think that, you know, the fact that Mark Ruffalo does such a good job portraying that depression in, in such a just like smooth way, like you get it without being hit over the head with it. You get that him just falling asleep, just being so uh, dismissive of the situation and able to just disconnect completely. Uh, that shit that like I could never do. And, and I want to be clear. I'm not saying that it's because I'd be so into the news and so hyped up or anything. I mean, because I'd be scared of my own safety. And maybe that's just like my size versus like who, my, who I think my partner's size would be like. Uh, I, I would just, I wouldn't close my eyes because I would like know that person's lying to me and know that they've been found out. And I just wouldn't want to turn my back on them, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. But <laughs> that's my own fears. <laughs> But I don't think he cares. I don't think he cares, like, you know, if, if she was caught in a lie and then now what's she going to do? That Now she's unpredictable? I don't think he cares. I don't know, like bang him over the head with a pot? I don't know. I'm like, I just wouldn't close my eyes on that, that jerk, you know? <laughs> I mean, didn't Homer Simpson say it best? Ah, the sweet, sweet relief of death. You know, I, 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 I don't know that Dominic particularly cares if he wakes in the morning. You know, if she goes all misery on him, I don't know that he's really worried about that. I think it's super interesting if you guys um, had the opportunity to look up Mark Ruffalo at all and his own personal struggles with depression and 
how he depicts these characters, I feel like has been so masterful. I, I think I just think that he really shows the levels of depression without being overly dramatic or making you feel like, oh, I see this man is now depressed. I'm happy that he's so willing to share his story with others so that we get where he as an actor is coming into this role. You sent around, you know, the link to him and I did look him up. Looking back to some of his characters over the years, he's quite good at showing that there's something else going on without drawing an exclamation point on it even with the Hulk, like, and that's what we talked about, you know, a couple episodes ago, like, that's where we kind of know him from, you know, for mainstream, but some of his other roles, you know, like he played that lawyer in um, Dark Waters, and there's like this undercurrent of, you know, sort of this melancholy kind of, you know, streak to him. So I think it's quite masterful when you see what he deals with in his own life. And it's not just depression that he's dealt with, he's, he's has you know, learning disabilities and things like that. So he's got some challenges. And I think he brings you know, some elements of that, especially to the role of Dominic, you know, more so than Thomas. I think he's doing a really good job with Thomas, but, you know, the complexity within Dominic is really showing. The music for this episode, for the first time, really stood out to me, starting with Wade Into the Water as the intro music instead of like the slow, dirgy, semi-horror movie uh, music that we've gotten. You know, they start with this kind of spiritual, uh, religious kind of uh, anthem, you know, to lead into the episode. And then in this scene with Joy, Drive by the Cars is playing. And just the lyrics in that song seem so apropos to Dominic and, and to Thomas. You know, like there are lines like, um, you know, I can't go on thinking that there's something wrong. Um, who's going to hold you down when you shake? Uh, and, and there are more. I mean, basically every line in that song applies to Thomas and or Dominic. And I, and I thought it was just a nice subliminal way of, of bringing home some themes that we're seeing play out on the screen. And background music is always a good way to kind of point point a, a, a viewer into the direction that you should be looking mood-wise. And uh, I think this was the second of three songs that they used in the episode that really kind of struck me that way. Uh, the next one is, you know, First Cut is the Deepest, which comes up while he's in the car and thinking about Dessa. But uh, do, did, did the music hit you guys at all in this episode or make you think? I really appreciated that, the car song, because I felt like there were so many different parts from realizing that joy is a dead end partner like who is gonna hold you who is gonna drive you home all that kind of stuff is like not joy and then the, the whole question of thomas throughout this episode of where is he gonna go after this you know settles closing who is gonna take care of thomas who's gonna drive you home thomas and where's your home where are you going um and i just i thought it was really interesting how they did that one. I, I find it odd that this episode was so full and the previous two, I don't really, I didn't really pay much attention to the music. So in that way, I was like, wow, this is like suddenly like, like blew up on the music side. It was almost like they were two episodes in and then like they hired a music supervisor who was like, y'all need some fucking tunes up right? in this bitch because damn. Uh, and they realized uh, that, you know, but they also didn't go back and fix it in the previous episodes either. So. Just uh, just quickly about the cars, um, that song where it, it fell in the episode, the quiet moments in the dialogue was where like the poignant lyrics kind of came out for me, like, who's going to pick you up when you fall? You know, you can't go on thinking nothing's wrong. Like it was the quiet moments of the dialogue that these themes came out that just really drove him to the to the point where it's just like, I can't be with I can't be here anymore. You know what it made me think of oddly and not because of theme, just the way it was it was used was um Bruce Springsteen's The Garden, 
our secret garden from Jerry Maguire. And I don't know if you guys remember. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. When that, when that movie came out and they, that song became a huge hit, the popular radio mix used dialogue from the movie mixed into the song. And it really highlighted the dialogue when you have the music playing with it. And, and then into uh, the first cut is the deepest, which is the longest radio mix of that song ever used ever in the final scene. Really, I think it highlighted what was happening action wise. We already hit up on the fact that his final flashback is about Dessa and, and her coming home from the trip and them having this joyful reunion and then having lackluster makeup sex. You know, she she does a wonderful job of going through the motions of wanting sex and craving that intimacy and that closeness. But then after he comes inside of her unexpectedly, she goes into panic mode that she's not ready that, you know, to maybe get pregnant again. And then he reveals in his very protect your honor, savior kind of way he has that, oh, no biggie, you know, don't worry about getting pregnant again because I got a vasectomy while you were gone. And then she, she storms out. And that's cut with him drinking and driving and heading to Dessa's house, crawling around on the floor outside of Dessa's house, begging Sadie the dog to not bark, saying, it's me, it's me. How did that hit you guys uh, insofar as where Dominic is in his downward spiral? You know, I do feel that it was a really low point for him because, you know, things have now kind of blown up in a lot of different ways. You know, he's he's had the meeting with Lisa. He's had the meeting with Lisa and Thomas to get ready for the hearing. He's heard some, you know, sort of bad news about what's happening. And then now, you know, the dead end with Joy, this is like, he's hit the dead end. Yeah, he's just, he's drinking, he's driving. He's, he's going back to the place where he's looking for the person who's going to pick him up when he falls down. You know, that line from the cars, from the, from the song. And he's just, he's trying to, you know, calm the dog down. Like, it's me, you know me, I'm okay, you know, um, it's okay. And, you know, then the light coming on kind of like bursts his bubble. I think the idea of begging with a dog that used to be your dog to please recognize me, please see me for who I am and, and take me back, basically, uh, painful, painful. I think that we've exhausted the flashbacks and, and laying the groundwork on who Thomas and Dominic are and how they came to be who they are in the present. Let's jump back to the beginning of the episode in the present where Lisa Sheffer calls Dominic down with the good news that the the judge has dropped the weapons charge and the, the criminal charges against uh, Thomas. But the bad news is that he has to go before the Psychiatric Security Review Board, which is a real thing and is the most terrifying kind of Orwellian government sounding or uh, entity I think you could possibly come up with. What was your guys' take on this whole scene? And in particular, uh, what did you think of Dominic's reaction to Lisa seemingly now being on his side and him asking, can you, can I trust you? I think whenever you're dealing with a government body or uh, for me, the school system, there's always that game of like, what team is this particular professional playing on? Are they really on my side or are they, you know, fully on the other? And I always could categorize people in my head really fast. Who's somebody I can actually tell how I feel? Who do I need to stay guarded with? This was a very fair question that he's asking Lisa. She really did seem to have some sort of moment of truth where she saw that Thomas was declining in this setting and that keeping him here was not in his best interest. But whenever you have a professional give you that like whisper whisper i'm telling you some insider information i feel uncomfortable about this date i'm not sure what they're trying to pull and then you react and you're like well wait a minute are they trying to pull something and then they give you the, like you need to settle down it's like what are you doing to me that that manipulated feeling would absolutely make you be like can i trust you like i have no idea if you're just like gaslighting me into me losing my mind right now i really don't know what you're doing lisa 
as a professional for me is is very much in this weird gray zone. Like, I don't know where to put her. You know, I want to know why she did such a 180 from the prior episode, because, you know, she was saying in the prior episode, you know, this is the most appropriate setting for him. Now she looks very unsettled when she's saying he doesn't belong here. You know, we do get a little element of Dominic being able to see Thomas from a window. You know, it's not good what he sees. You know, there's this kind of a bully not lighting his cigarette, keeps pulling it away. And, you know, it just it just underlines how helpless Thomas looks in this setting. So I just want to know what Lisa saw. Like if if we only saw that one little nugget, imagine what happens in the other 23 hours and 55 minutes of the day for Thomas. I think for me, a lot of my issue with Lisa is the 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 lack of empathy, the la- the lack of passion that she has. You know, she she has a, a clinical robotic way about her. Because even when she's saying the right things to him in this scene, you know, you, you need to be an advocate for your brother. Which in this in this review board meeting, which means not you know blowing your top with your hot Sicilian blood. Oof. Again, with the fucking Sicilian blood. And, you know, telling him to write a script so that he can keep his thoughts organized. That's all really good information. But she says it in such a dispassionate tone that it also makes me think of, you seem so, uh, dis- at best, disinterested or at worst, insincere. I, I can't even process what you're telling me because I have no idea what angle you're playing. That's how she comes off. I would today. use the word jaded um, because that's what I found with professionals who would get to this point. They've just been through it so many times. It's so rote. It, they just, they can't bring themselves to have the level of emotion that we would all think is just normal because they just have to say it so many different times to so many different families. They're personally just over it. And I, I mean, I've had heart to heart conversations with those people where I'm like, I get it. I understand. It's it's when you start bringing a picture of your kid to the meeting and you put it, you put it on the table in a frame as big as their own head and you'd be like this is the person we're talking about this is a real person because the people who are there they have meeting after meeting after meeting with the same information they're giving you right everyone's a file folder a case number so you know keeping it human is something at at first i thought you know she was trying to be an ally to him and then in listening to how she was saying things to him i did feel that she was just kind of going through the motions like she tells him like to develop a script you can't tell me that a social worker with the years of experience that lisa sheffer has she doesn't have a script already you know so in telling dominic that he needs to be an advocate she just she lost a lot of her you know she came with a little bit of passion in the first you know scene that we saw her in the second episode but now she's kind of she's done a like a, a 180 again like so she did a 180 on thomas and now she's kind of I don't know. She's being disrespectful to Dominic too. She calls him Domenico, like his grandfather's name, like, you know, part of this hot Sicilian blood thing that she can, I just find that disrespectful. Like his name is Dominic. He's introduced him as Dominic and she's calling him Domenico. Well, it's such a tactic to, to try and sell that I'm on your side. Like we're friends or some bullshit. Like, you know, remember going back to our, our long relationship of last week when I met you and I, I talked about Domenico and how, we're, you know, we're basically cousins, you know, paisans. Uh, because my grandfather was also, uh, uh, Domenico, which I don't know, maybe, maybe she's a secret sister, uh, of his. And that's why she's so obsessed with his, uh, his identity. But yeah, that's a real move that if you're paying attention even a little bit, it seems so false and so fake, the, the Domenico call out. It's, I get it. It's an attempt to disarm him, you know, to bring him back, you know, to reality. But at the same time, it's very condescending. It's like, nope, I've introduced myself as Dominic. Like, that's my name. Uh, the name thing is a, is an, is a real 
power play situation too, because I've been in meetings where, you know, it's myself and then it's like all the other school official type people and they're all calling each other by their first names, but they'll only call me Mrs. Daly. And it's done in a Mrs. Daly kind of way that it, it, it is so delineated. Like we're on one team. We're just Linda and Barbara and whatever, but you are Mrs. Daly. Like you're on the other side. It, it is such a game. That and just to Sheila's point about last week, I think she showed some passion, but I think the passion that she showed last week was only insofar as trying to tell Dominic that he needed to change his tone with her. It wasn't any kind of passion of being fired up to, to help Thomas and or help Thomas get him out of this maximum security kind of situation. There was no passion there. She, she was just assuming the system was right as far as that topic goes, even last week. So I think her only passion last week was kind of trying to tell Dominic that he was a, a little bit of a disrespectful asshole, which he totally was. But he also wasn't wrong. You know, right, have, some, <laughs> have some compassion for the theory. Like if, if I go into that situation or, or if someone ever comes to me and I've decided that I am going to be on their side, then I'm going to be passionate about them knowing that I'm on their side, though. And and maybe it made to the point of jaded, like Caroline was saying, was that she no longer has that ability to get fired up. But maybe, I don't, I don't know, you're not, I don't, as a person who is going to rely on her for her expertise, for her knowing how to navigate the system, I need some more convincing, some more sincere convincing that you're actually doing what's in my, me and my brother's best interest and, and not just punching a clock for your job. It's also important as claiming to be an advocate for someone to think about the information that you're sharing. As much as it seems like, oh, you know, how forthright she was to share her concerns about the moved up date and the speed in which this meeting was going to happen. What was Dominic supposed to do with that information besides get upset? So I feel like, again, I questioned her professionalism. I questioned how much she was trying to manipulate the situation for then to also in the same breath, her saying, my concern about Thomas has increased. I am more concerned. I am more on your side of trying to get him out. I, I'm like, I don't know what to do with you, lady. It's before he leaves the hospital, he goes to try and find his brother and maybe catch a glimpse of him. And he actually runs into Ralph Drinkwater, who you get the impression he hasn't seen since the funeral where he gave that insincere, possibly sociopathic eulogy. I was taken back by how obtuse Dominic seemed to be to asking Ralph for a favor in this situation. Like another just red flag of him not really getting or caring or, or not even processing the damage that he has done to this guy's life. Like that as if he thinks 40 years going by or 30 years going by should make it all better. Like how dare Ralph have uh, be holding a grudge against him because he needs help now with his brother. Well, this kind of goes back to the point about Dominic not being very self-aware and not having much reflection and just being a selfish prick. I think, you know, he just, I don't think he thinks that there's anything wrong with him asking Ralph for a favor. Water under the bridge, 30 years removed. Drink water under the bridge. <laughs> I think he also is so disconnected from what he actually caused. You know, I, I think that we could all see the obvious cause and effect of what had happened. And he sort of portrayed it to us in the story but never said, I regret that I caused Penny's disappearance or something like that. Like he never drew his own line that he was a part of it. 
Right. I mean, he dances up to it by saying that him and the teacher conspired to make her life miserable. But yeah, you're, you're 100% right, which is part of the problem. He knows what he did because of the shame that he felt from his brother's eyes watching him. He knows he did something wrong, but he's never taken responsibility for being the proximate cause of this little girl's death. That's troubling. There are moments in your life that you should reflect on at some point, right? To, to see how you reacted and how you participated in them and what you could have done better or worse or, or what. Take stock of what has happened. For him to come into this situation and act the way he acts with Ralph is so troubling that he clearly has never taken responsibility or real stock of the damage he caused the drink the Drinkwater family. That's a real red flag to me, again, with Dominic and his character and and, and the 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 stability of his mental faculties. The way that he can divorce himself from the situation, just mentally, like we were just talking about, like, how do you go to sleep after all of that? How do you do this? How do you, how do you walk away from that? How do you, you know, you can't look your brother in the eye and you can say you, you were a co-conspirator, but, but you can't just say, I did this to another person. I, I he scares me. I mean, he is getting like more and more really out there for me. You know, so often when he talks about Thomas, he talks about how selfish he is. But meanwhile, you know, all the points that we're bringing up is really underlying that Dominic is truly the selfish one. But he puts himself out there as such a martyr, saying that, you know, Thomas is my curse and, you know, he's my burden and things like that. So, yeah, it's just it's just underlying that there's just something under the surface that, you know, he, he needs to sit in, you know, Dr. Patel's chair a little bit more. <laughs> You calling him a martyr or, or embracing the martyr role is perfect because when we see him with Dr. Patel, he's coming out of the college flashback in her office and he's crying and he's sobbing. And it was such an interesting 180 from last week when he, he seemed not to be very interested in Dr. Patel or her intrusive theories and questions playing the therapy session with Thomas. He seems to have really embraced uh, the ability to to tell her all of his woes and really portray himself in a in a certain way, which she seems more than happy to listen to. He seems to be the brother that she thinks that she can save. It was a real, I found my audience to listen to my story and appreciate the wonderful savior and martyr that I really am. What did you guys think of him uh, him in Dr. Patel's office and that that vulnerability? See, I don't know. I'm I'm going to go more with that whole idea that he is just someone who is controlling the the narrative. Just trying to, you know, say it in a way that that he could best make himself feel like, you know, yeah, I had a part to play. I was there. <laughs> I'm willing to say that much, but I'm not really willing to to go further than that. As small as some of the little things are, like you could say, what role did Dominic play and the fact that the key wasn't available to Thomas for the typewriter. Did he put it in the same spot that he's always supposed to put it in? You know, that kind of thing, like little moments like that. There's like, what role did you play in tipping a situation over? And I just, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't take him as vulnerable. I take him as carefully wording things he does. I think that's a really good point. And again, so far above the kind of self-awareness than he has. I don't think you're ever going to get him to a spot where he could ever really do a fair assessment when he looks back on his life, especially with, you know, vis-a-vis his brother, where he is more than willing to play the part of being the brother's keeper all these years and being the one who's had to endure the burden of Thomas 
but never, never stopping to take stock of the situations that he put him in. Uh, you know, think of how could you have handled the wedding better? Um, where, uh, where he goes, um, uh, well, no, I guess he was sick for that. No, stop that. He, you know, take, uh, the last week's uh, flashback where they're talking about the funeral, um, after Angela passes away, right? And he is talking about, uh, we cut to Thomas downstairs talking about how she was murdered because as a warning to him, because the governments are, you know, are after him. He's having this paranoid delusion spin out story and, um, and Dominic explodes on him. Uh, the, the key with the typewriter, uh, who knows how many incidents with Ray, uh, you know, what part did he play by putting Thomas in positions where Thomas was at risk to, to act in a way that society wouldn't be okay, or that would be harmful to Thomas or harmful to Thomas and Dominic or harmful to the family. When you just said that thing about what position did he put in with Ray? When I think back to the words that he actually used, he said, well, I knew when to be quiet. I knew not to push Ray's buttons, like that kind of stuff. That's like, how is, how are you an adult 40 year old man and not say, I don't care what Thomas said. It wasn't right for Ray to hurt him like that. Like, who are you that you are still saying, well, I just was the good twin. I just said the right things. And that's why Thomas got beat and not me. Like, oh my God. <laughs> and you had brought up the point, Mike, last time, why didn't he know to mention that Thomas doesn't know his right from left in the bus? You know, like moments like that, like, I think he plays the role of the reluctant caretaker, but it doesn't mean he actually takes care of Thomas. He is physically in the proximity of Thomas. And sometimes, and I will say right now, obviously with the Hatch situation, he is trying to go to bat for him, but he hasn't always. And he doesn't, he doesn't actually do the caring part of the caretaking. Yeah, there's no teaching. There's no, you know, coaching on, you know, the right from the left when they were eight years old. There's, there's none of that. Well, or, or at least he doesn't go to bat for his brother until the situation has gotten so, so bad. Like he, uh, he doesn't, he types the paper, you know, he helps his brother out and types the paper, but only after the room has been trashed and he is, he's gotten scared about what he's reading. He only goes to bat for his brother after he's gotten to the point of cleaving off his hand and being put in this maximum security facility. And even in that case, Mike, it takes an outside party to say, Thomas is a person. It's not okay that he mutilated his own body, Dominic. Like, right. you know, he still isn't right. caring in that big C caring for Thomas. He is physically there, but he's not, the heart's not there in it. Right. And, and so, and, and let, let's go back to their childhood for a second, because you made me think of this just now when you were talking about, when we were talking about the positions that they put each other in. Sibling relationships are difficult, right? And, and it's, it's not uncommon for one brother or sister to want to be the favorite. And so maybe you don't help out your brother or sister to avoid them getting in trouble. Maybe, maybe you, you raise your hand and, you know, you're looking for the shiny gold star, uh, as a one upmanship in front of your parents' eyes. But if you know your brother is being disciplined severely, uh, if you know Ray is a tough son of a bitch who is already out for your brother, I don't think it's uncommon for you to be expected to take a special role and try and teach him to avoid doing the things that are going to get him in trouble. The point you brought Caroline was relating the story back. He's like, I was the good twin. I was the one who knew how to act. But the question is, why didn't you tell your brother? 
that's going to get you in trouble. Don't do those things when Ray is around. You know it sets him or off. Why isn't why isn't the quote unquote right way to act to step in front or do something? You know what I mean? Like, no, all you did was protect your own ass. What is that? Right. What qualifies as the right way to act? I don't know. Maybe when you're very little, you could give him a pass, right, on some level. But I don't know. Is the right thing to do to go get a neighbor, go tell the police, go tell your mom, like do something else to protect your brother. So my son is an only child, but he has some close friends. When they get in trouble or they are, they start to do something that they shouldn't and, and Tom will tell me about it or express worry about it. The advice I always give him is go help them make a better choice. Go try, show them how they're supposed to act if you know they're not acting the way they should and or they're acting in a way that is going to get them in trouble even though it maybe sh maybe it shouldn't um, the way they see it, but it's going to. Practically, if you care about someone, if you care about their well-being, there's never too early a time to start learning. Go go help them avoid that situation, because the 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 consequences are going to be dire. You know, if you fucked around with Ray, it wasn't going to be just a stern talking to. It may be loss of teeth. It may be a, a belt. It may be a switch. It was going to be severe in Ray's household, in Ray's law, in Ray's kingdom. Like, that's on Dominic for not helping his brother out when he's seeing his brother is not getting that. I put that on him. And I'm going to walk a line on that and say, again, they're kids, so I'm not giving them full blame, but I am saying as an adult retrospective, stop holding yourself up as some fucking saint. You know, like you weren't a saint in the situation. You didn't, you didn't act so much better and do so much better than Thomas. Thomas struggled through a situation. He didn't read the room. He couldn't read the room. And so he, he misstepped. He said the wrong things at the wrong time. That doesn't make you a great guy. <laughs> it makes Thomas struggling with the situation. And never have we heard him say or, or get real broken down about the way Ray treated Thomas as a child. It's never been... I wish I could go back and change it. I wish I could have go back and done something about it. I wish I could have gone back and 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 show Thomas the way he should have acted to avoid Ray. He just accepts it as for what it was with no kind of remorse or if I could do it again differently, I would do it again differently. That that's why I'm not so limited to give him a pass. Yeah, maybe as very little kids, but by the time you're 9, 10, 11 years old, seeing what your brother's going through having an idea of what your brother is being put through torture wise. I, I don't know that that's excusable to allow, unless, unless you're enjoying what's happening to your brother, unless you're so divorced from your emotions and you just don't give a shit so much over your own well-being. Uh, I don't think, I don't, I don't think you can give a pass for that at, at a certain age. It's on you as a human being to try and save your brother, your twin brother, your identical twin brother. I'm going to use a little different word in that situation and say, I think that at times, especially when you're kids, it's easy to be relieved that someone else takes the brunt of the punishment. And the amount of times that he also shows, like how you were saying, Sheila, earlier, that he, he feels Thomas is the curse. He feels like on some level, he kind of thinks Thomas deserves to get in trouble and to be yelled at because he wants to yell it out of him, you know, on a lot of ways. Now, to be very fair, in the very first episode, when Ray's talking about, you know, if only we could have done something differently and treated, you know, Thomas differently, basically, you know, wanting to discipline it out of him. Dominic of now is quick to say, you couldn't have 
you know, basically slapped it out of him or something. He's, it's, that's not his exact words, but you guys know what I mean. You can't discipline mental illness out of someone. So I'm glad that they like said that out loud because that is the most, I think, clear moment that Dominic has ever had. And and now when I look back, I'm like, was that even remotely an earned comment from that character? Because he doesn't seem to have that kind of understanding at other points in time. Yes, he does say that to Ray, but he doesn't say it to anyone else. He doesn't express express any kind of remorse to anyone else. I mean, he's defending Ray last week to Dr. Patel. So he's calling his brother an exaggerator, that it wasn't as bad as he's making it sound. Motherfucker, you don't I don't think you really knew how bad it was. That's my feeling. You don't you do, you have either blocked it out or you never really appreciated how bad it really was for your brother growing up with Ray as a stepfather. I give him very minimal credit for saying that to Ray. He, how he acts and, and speaks about his brother and their growing up to others is much more indicative to me than speaking out against Ray in the car in that one situation. Can I just say one thing about like him in the chair with Dr. Patel? She finally looks human to me. Like, I mean, I, I, I was harsh on her in the last episode where, you know, she was looking so eager about him being the, the control for his, you know, mentally ill brother. This one, when he was breaking down and he was having, you know, his emotional moments and, and telling her, you know, sort of where things have gone, she did look like she had a little bit of a human understanding, a little bit of glimmer of emotion. I, I just questioned why he all of a sudden he decided that Dr. Patel was someone that he could trust after sort of how they got off on their, um, their first meeting. I think he has decided that she's someone who is not only willing to listen, but embrace his version of life, his martyrdom, and all he has done. Uh, th that, that was my take on it. But these two are just going to have this symbiotic relationship where she, she gets to listen and quote unquote save him. And he is more than willing to, to have someone to, to listen to his side of the story and, and really appreciate that he is the good the good actor in this scenario who has been the caretaker and cared despite what the flashbacks seem to be showing us. Yeah. And I think that she's interested in his narrative. You know, I think he sees that she wants to know his story and doesn't care, you know, sort of where the narrative is coming from, from whose point of view or how sinister it seems. I feel like that's the part about controlling the narrative. He is maybe not so into telling Patel uh, the stories because he's trying to have this moment with her necessarily but knowing she is also talking to thomas i feel like there's a sense of if i tell the story first and she hears my version then that's the truth and so i i kind of feel like he's playing a game knowing that she's with both of them which i still question the whole <laughs> ethical nature of that history is written by the winners it's in the scenario of thomas and dominic you know dominic is the winner and it's his version of history that is going to be the one that society accepts. And certainly it's going to be the one it looks like that Dr. Patel is going to accept. Uh, so yeah, I think you're dead on. I, I think it's very, I think he has a very vested interest in getting his version of the story out there. Same way that he was not being a complete defender of the therapy session last week and chiming in and actually going to the defense of Ray, but which actually is a nice segue to this final, this final part of the Thomas Dominic story this week where they finally come face to face after, you know, since the first episode where they're torn apart uh, at the end of the episode, the brothers finally get to see each other and Lisa is there with them. And Lisa and Dominic have come to prep Thomas for this upcoming psychiatric security review board meeting and trying to make sure that 
Thomas understands what he is supposed to say and what he is not supposed to say. Just as a general reaction, what was your take on this whole scene, Sheila? What what was your your takeaway of of the different things that's happening here between these three? At first, Thomas seemed very disconnected, very disjointed. Like his thoughts were kind of disorganized, and you know he was talking about like why isn't Grandma buried with Grandpa? Meanwhile, you know they're talking about like we need to get a game plan together for this very scary sounding the psychiatric review board or whatever it was. Um, the PSRB, you know, so it, it felt very disjointed. Like I, f- I felt his illness there, you know, they're trying to, you know, figure out like how they're going to tackle this hearing. So it just didn't, it didn't resonate really well for me because it just like, I could feel his pain. And then he goes into the whole diatribe about the religious aspect and, and things like that. But, but just, you know, we kind of touched on it very early on in this, in this podcast, Lisa tells Dominic right before Thomas is brought in that Settle is closing. And that's the long-term care facility that Thomas was living at before and he kind of runs like the coffee shop there. So this is really bad news. You know, so I, I think that's kind of like how the the tone for the meeting is set off for me. And we talked about that a little bit, Sheila, in terms of that presentation of information. If Lisa had said, so I have some information here. Um, Settle is closing. However, there are three other area uh, choices. They're further away, or this one's a you know a little less ideal, or this one has this going for it. But she doesn't. She just drops that bit of information, lets him freak out, and then is like, "Oh well, you know, we're gonna like work to get him in somewhere else." And you're like, "Well, you could have said that." You know, it's like you never come to a problem without a solution, and that's exactly what she did. Like she was just like, "We have a problem. Settles closing," and he's just like, "Well, he can stay at my house." And then she's very condescending, saying, well, you're going to have to essentially baby-proof your house. That is not how you talk about a 40-year-old man. Right. And and she should know better being a social worker. I mean, certainly she's been through a gajillion trainings about, you know, how to speak about someone who has, you know, mental challenges in some way. Like, come on now. You don't refer to them as a baby. Come on. Right. This is part of the Domenico thing, right? It's part of the, she's talking to him the way that like Leo maybe would talk to him or the way she thinks a close friend would talk to Dominic about their brother that like very familiar, I think is what I'm trying to say, comes off all sorts of tone deaf when she, when she tells that to him. But, but Sheila, I had such a different take on Thomas in this meeting and Dominic. He didn't seem scattered to me at all at the beginning. He devolves into uh, a paranoid episode, but when he's talking about grandma and he's and he's talking about the religion, I think he's very much talking about the things that he wants to talk about. I don't think he's just saying words without thought. I think these are things that are on his mind. He knows what Lisa's there for. He says he knows what the meeting is there for. He's just over it. He he's already had this information from Lisa, so he this meeting for him is just a chance to kind of talk about with his brother, who hasn't been able to see, some familial things that he's been thinking about. I don't think he was scattered. I just don't think he gave a shit about the meeting and the upcoming meeting with the PSRB the same way Lisa and Dominic were. You know, they're so worried about what he's going to say and everything. I think he's just kind of over it. I think to him, priority-wise, it was much more interesting and much more of a priority for him to talk about his calling from God, to talk about uh, thinking about the waterfall and thinking about Penny and Ralph, right? Because Ralph is there and that's a trigger for him. And and thinking about grandma and grandpa. I think that was just priority wise what he wanted to talk about. Well, that's kind of what I mean when I say like, you know, I mean, so he's he's like a higher functioning, 
you know, schizophrenic, um, where he's he's not the person on the subway platform that you have to worry about that he's going to push you off the subway. Like he's not like scattered and disorganized in that way, but he he can't focus on like the task at hand. You know, for him, it was more important that you know he talk about you know the the Book of Revelation as opposed to the game plan to how to get him to a lower level of you know security and a better level of care for himself. Not that his thoughts were just this you know scattered and he wasn't making sense. It's just that he wasn't able to focus on the task at hand. That's I think maybe maybe if I misstated that, like maybe that's a better clarification. And I want to add to that that. Um, I appreciate how, how you're saying it, Mike, in terms of like, you know, but these are something he's thinking about and, and that's understood. Uh, and, and I agree with you that, that that was portrayed. However, that's not the right thing or the appropriate thing to be thinking about right now. And putting that in front of your safety and, and what is appropriate for your care is not what you should be thinking about right now. And the fact that you can't come around to the conversation and that you aren't even willing to discuss or see the consequences of what you're saying about oh, i'm just going to tell him i cut off my hand because i'm sacrificing all this stuff like he does he he does not have the ability to even listen to what the consequences are going to be to that because he's so worried about talking about grandma and as much as that's like okay well he has concerns about grandma okay but but this is a very serious very pivotal moment in your care and we have to focus on that right now. And he couldn't, which, I mean, Sheila, I don't know what this, what is this review board possibly going to think of this man? I mean, I know what happens at the end of this episode. So I know that, you know, the, the choices now have become extremely limited in terms of what is going to happen with him. But if Thomas cannot listen and have some amount of reasonable conversation, how are they possibly expecting this this review to go? I've worked in healthcare for 18 years for the New York City public hospital system. A lot of my work has put me in the path of many different departments. And so I've worked with psychiatry departments. I've worked with, you know, I've worked on psych floors. You know, when they have high profile cases where, you know, I mean, Thomas was high profile. He cleaved off his hand in a library. It was in the news. It was in the newspapers. Not to say that like this is where case precedent is set, but when you have these high, high profile things, there's a lot of pressure to deal with things harshly, swiftly, you know, so that this way maybe rules might get built upon this in the future. I don't know if I'm saying that in a, in a, in a right way. I don't want to say that that's how policy is made, but there is pressure to, you know, deal with these high profile cases quickly. And that's, you know, sort of what Lisa was saying in the beginning of the episode, like, I don't know why they're meeting so quickly. This is not the norm. I think that's a good point. And I think that it goes back to other conversations that we've had about generally, like, you don't want someone to imitate this. You don't want there to be um, any kind of idea in the public that we condone or aren't taking seriously enough what his actions were. And so I, I agree that there is definitely an added amount of pressure and you could see where this the the script and all that stuff you know gosh the pressure to be able to say just the right things in a review board situation i cannot even imagine i feel like my mind gets spinning when i'm just trying to talk to the doctor or you know listen to information when things are happening in a very you know crisis ridden kind of moment i'm really really concerned about this entire situation and the fact that thomas cannot be reined in to have a conversation, even if I understand the point that he already knows what he's going to say. So why have the conversation? Well, because this is going to be really high pressure and we better really practice what we're going to say. 
No, I totally appreciate, and 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 if I'm Dominic or or Lisa, you know, Jesus, it, it, this is the kind of scene that makes a social worker probably like Lisa have a hip flask with her at all times. Um, but if I'm Dominic, I totally feel the frustration of when he starts he starts whisper threatening right to to Thomas in the scene, like no matter what you think about God and your calling, you can't fucking talk about that to the review board. You can't go off and, and talk about having a calling from God to sacrifice your hand. Like you can't do that. The feeling of just wanting to shake someone, you know, to pay attention to the the stakes is, is palpable here. And I think they do a great job of that. One of the things I think they do a great job with all the time is when Dominic shifts from disinterested to interested, to exasperated, to pity feeling, to sadness. It happens a couple times. It happened in the scene with raging about the typewriter and then going to type the paper and then being scared of what he was seeing in the paper. And I think it goes from here too, where he's so frustrated and you get the, you get the sense that he just wants to shake Thomas into paying attention to what's at stake here, but then hugs him. And when he gets so upset and breaks down, I think Mark Ruffalo in particular is really bringing to life what is on the page word-wise, the quickly shifting emotions and the complexity of these situations. Uh, yeah, I, I totally appreciate how high stakes this is and how frustrating it must be to sit there and witness Thomas not taking an interest in any kind of way of what may be a, a seminal point in his life. We're dealing with possibly at least a year of incarceration. It's not the word. What's the word? Uh, being admitted for at mandated. least a year. He's going to be mandated to a facility. And, and you know, for, for right, a minimum of a year. And it's one of those situations where I, I don't know this for a fact, but I, I feel like if you get mandated for a year, getting out after that year probably becomes increasingly hard, right? Because he may not get better. Maybe medication will keep him from getting worse. But if he's going to continue to decline every year he's in the facility, it's going to make it that much harder for him to ever get out of the facility, right? It has to be some kind of snowball effect. This is a really important hearing for the future of his life. Right. Like when you're in a facility, now they have you under lock and key and they, they're scrutinizing your behavior and they're reporting you know, every 12 hours on your behavior and every infraction right. is going to be used against you. If we're talking about power of narrative, going back to what Caroline said, once he is admitted to Hatch or some other facility in a long-term case, it becomes the government is in power of that narrative. They're in control of that narrative. The doctors are in control of who they think Thomas is. Not necessarily who Thomas is, but who they think he is, the same way maybe the professor was singling him out because of who she thought Thomas was, the same way Ray maybe treated him because of who he thought Thomas was. Now the government, the government has immense power, and I don't know that you ever want the government having the control over the narrative of who you are. That doesn't strike me as something that ever ends well. And also, you know, this story takes place in 1990. So we're removed by 30 years from how healthcare has evolved from 1990 to, you know, 2020. And the feeling and the plan of treatment for mentally ill patients has changed drastically, you know, from the time of 1990, where it was, you know, they didn't have a lot of flexibility in terms of like the different areas for treatment, you know, like halfway houses and things like that are often used. You know, it was basically, you know, a minimum level of care like settle and you know you had then your maximum security like you know the hatches where the 90s kind of saw a lot of hospital closings and, and things like that and then in the 2000s and the 2010s there was this like rise of patient-centered care especially in psychiatry having the patient be at the center of their treatment planning setting goals and things like that we see none of that in 1990 it's medicate them it's keep them you know under lock and key in this government setting where it's just it's a self-perpetuating prophecy of you're never going to get out. And the more that you're in that situation, the more that your 
behavior is shaped by that situation. And so you start to just kind of devolve into what that place allows, you know, just like really honestly, like any typical person in prison, you know, people come out and say prison changes you. If you are in the wrong place, if you're in the wrong environment for you, if it's not supportive in the right situation for you, your behavior and who you are is going to be altered forever. And it is going to be very difficult to ever, ever, ever undo any of it. So I feel that desperation to get him out. I just worry and I hear all the things that Dominic is saying in terms of he never was taught the tools, successfully at least, to advocate for himself, to calm himself down, to rein himself in. And I think, Sheila, I hear what you're saying about that would be the focus of today. You know, what goals can we set for you where you take a little more control at whatever level the person can? Obviously, that varies. Yeah, you have to meet them where they're at. Exactly. So at the end of this episode, we have this completely jarring car accident that Dominic's involved with. And, you know, looking at that entire scene, the fact that he hits the one tree in the field could not be more Dominic. And now I feel like we're faced with this idea of where in the world is Thomas going to go? And how is this moment going to push off his possible release from anything? Even the hearing, like, would it even be legal to have a hearing if there was no one able to go in and stand on your behalf at all? I don't even know. Will they try to move the hearing? What do you guys think that they'll do? What will be the repercussions, I guess? Because now I think Dominic's got to be out of commission in some way. I don't think it's required to have somebody at a hearing because there's plenty of people that don't have family that don't have a next of kin. So I think Lisa's going to have to be the advocate. And, and I don't know. I don't know where Dr. Patel is falling in all of this, but, you know, it's going to be someone from the facility with him because they have to be there. And Thomas, I think. I mean, yeah, that was my take. That would be my take, too, is that Lisa is the only one who mandated has to be there. The government's appointee advocates, not necessarily a family member, no matter how crucial that family member may be to the patient's well-being. I mean, can you imagine how Thomas is going to react when he goes there and his brother is not there? That's something he's for fuck sure going to be caring about, is that Dominic is not there at this hearing. You know, he may be disinterested in every other aspect of the hearing, but he will definitely be upset and you could see him having a major tantrum at his brother not being there. So we all assume that meeting will not be rescheduled, the hearing. Will we have some sort of time jump here? I mean, where do you guys see this going? I mean, I think next episodes, we've got to get into Grandpa's story. But after that, like, how do you think that this plays out? I don't think it gets rescheduled. I think it would be unrealistic if it got rescheduled, honestly. I think it would be a real Oz moment, to use a term from our Hollywood podcast episode, if the government machine rescheduled this hearing because of Dominic and his car wreck. Because the way they see it is that's not directly related to the decision on Thomas in any way, shape or form. So, yeah, so I think the decision is going to be made without Dominic's input, which will just be another, you know, possible source of guilt or not for Dominic. You know, he's going to blame the cow for not getting out of his way or the tree for being there in an empty field or all of the fermented grains in the beer that he constantly drinks that allowed him to plow into a fucking tree in an empty field. Um, but it won't be his fault, but it will be a host of other people's faults. But yeah, this will be another situation where he is a caretaker who did not take care. 
Well said. Yes. I don't think he's going to take any responsibility. This is going to be the car honking and swerving and the one tree in the whole field that he crashed into. But yeah, I don't think the meeting is going to be rescheduled either. It's too high profile a case that we've already established that they're, they're going to plow through. And I think you're right, Caroline. We have to go to the grandfather and, and this this idea of identity and, and who is Dominic that we were we were promised we were going to explore in the first episode. For me, I, I've really enjoyed the show. I think it's actually been very well done. The show will lose a lot for me if we don't get there soon. It, only because narratively, it, it would just be so sloppy and poor for it to dangle all of these placeholders, these clunky placeholders that it's put, to not broach it and broach it soon. I agree with you guys that that the idea of him taking any amount of responsibility is absolutely not on the table. And I think that it's fascinating going back to Dominic coming to settle and telling Thomas that their mom has passed away and Thomas immediately being like, it's not you, it's God. God did this, that kind of thing. I think that that's where the religious, you know, layering in of, we don't have to take responsibility here. No one does really, because it's God. God did it, God's plan. And I think that that is just like the, the, the smell, the stink lines coming off the show at this point about like, mm, what personal responsibility do you take in? What part is just like God, God's will? Any last thoughts to either of you guys? Yeah, so I mean, I think for me, uh, there there are a lot of question marks. You know, there are a lot of things up in the air. I think the grandfather is something that has to come into play uh, with this idea of entity, uh, identity. Um, but just as far as this episode goes, I just want to actually give a shout out to the the show for casting wise. I, I feel like the young versions of Dominic and Thomas that they've used have actually been spectacular. But uh, particularly Philip Ettinger, who they got to play college age Dominic and Thomas in this episode was fantastic mannerism wise vocally but also like just appearance wise i i thought it was just so spot on for a young mark ruffalo and the applause that we've given to mark ruffalo for doing such distinct characters as thomas and and, and dominic not only in appearance which is always shocking every time you see the two of them together especially when he's shaved and in the hospital when we see him out in like the courtyard with the cowboy hat guy like it's just remarkable how different they look and being the same person. But I, I think we have to give a lot of kudos to, to Philip Entinger for really embracing um, this college age uh, version of these characters and, and being able to show the start of the decline. It was, you know, it's kind of a very important moment in the overall character development of, of Thomas Birdie. And so I just wanted to give him and the show a good shout out for great casting. Agreed. I think that they're doing amazing. And actually, I think that Rosie O'Donnell's doing a great job. I mean, I completely buy her as this social worker. She has that like grittiness and edginess and I don't know. I, I think that they did great overall. Uh, little secret. I don't like Rosie O'Donnell. I feel like very few um, people do, but that's okay. Cause I, I think that this role is, it's cool to dislike her. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I actually think she's actually doing a good job here. Cause I think she's embracing all of the things that I find so unlikable about her just as an actress, as just everything about her. I, I don't typically like she's usually one of the things I like least in whatever project she's in. But I think she's actually doing a great job here because she's playing someone who is just so real to life to me as someone as, as a as a face of the system, you know, quote unquote, the system. I, I think she's actually doing a good job here. I feel like she kind of just plays herself as the characters. Like, I don't feel there's a lot of dimension in many of the roles that she's been in so i think she is doing a good job playing the social worker and being like the jaded 
New Englander, you know, like I kind of feel like a jaded New Yorker the way that Lisa acts, even though this takes place in Connecticut. But that's just the kind of like vibe that I get. And I just don't think that that's much of a deviation from Rosie O'Donnell. Now, I'm patting on the back the casting people, not so much Rosie, but casting that they did right to put her in this role. She is, she is this person, you know? Agreed. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This is Caroline. This is Sheila. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening to I Know This Much Is True podcast. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.